Welcome to the Mark Staley Music Podcast. This podcast is an audio journal of my guests and nice adventures throughout the live and local music biz. Fun conversations, cool tunes, and good times will be had. My name is Mark Sterry, and I'm a 15-plus year veteran of the Twin Cities, Minnesota metro music scene. Check me out at Mark Sterry, that's S-T-A-R-Y, music.net. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of my original music, including my new track, Dog Park, is available for download on iTunes, CD Baby, etc. This podcast drops every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. If you enjoy it, please subscribe on iTunes. It's totally free and guarantees you'll never miss an episode. If you got an extra buck or two that you wouldn't mind tossing in the podcast tip jar, please visit patreon.com forward slash Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Also, consider helping get the word out in the street via social media, five-star rating and review on iTunes, word of mouth, etc. Happy Thought of the Day is by Steve Earle. I don't believe that songwriting has to be profound, but I truly believe that it's a crime for you to go out of your way for it not to be. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Mark Sterry Music Podcast, episode 92. Thanks to all the folks who contribute to this podcast on Patreon.com. Coming at you this week on a super busy errand day here at my family's cabin in Turtle Lake, Wisconsin. Oil change, the vet, the bank, visiting grandma, working on my folks' garden, podcast editing, etc. Thinking I'm going to keep slugging away at odds and ends here on my day off till Copper the Wonder Golden says, It's beer 30. Wednesday, I played a solo show at Pub 42 in New Hope, Minnesota. Since the sudden cancellation of music at the Muni, it made my day to see Sherry, Mark, and a number of the YZ crew out at the show. Thursday, Brian, K. Johnson, and myself jammed at Lucky's 13 in Roseville, Minnesota. Great to see Jeff and Erica. Friday, I played a solo show at Nova in Hudson, Wisconsin. It was my Aunt Shirley's birthday celebration and had a great surprise when Starry cousin Patty and her family happened to swing in as well. Saturday, Brian Johnson and myself rocked out at Vanelli's by the Lake in Forest Lake, Minnesota. Happy to see new fans Erica, Miss America, and Chris there. Also the famous slash infamous AJ Nezzy as well. Good luck in Chanhassen, bud. Saturday, Brian K. Johnson, Copper the Wonder Golden, and myself jammed on the patio at Paradise Landing in Balsam Lake, Wisconsin. Blake Radical's little niece, Rika, and Copper were a huge hit with a Sunday Fun Day audience. Upcoming shows. Tuesday, July 18th, 2017, Brian K. Johnson and myself will be jamming out at Music on Library Lake in Cumberland, Wisconsin from 6 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, July 19th, I'll be playing a solo show at Pub 42 in New Hope, Minnesota from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Thursday, July 20th, Brian K. Johnson and myself will be jamming at Lucky's 13 in Burnsville, Minnesota from 4 to 7 p.m. 
Friday, July 21st, Brian, Keith, Johnson, and myself will be rocking the house at Lucky's 13 in Plymouth, Minnesota from 8 to 11 p.m. Saturday, July 22nd, I'll be playing a solo show at Harbor Bar in Hager City, Wisconsin from 2 to 6 p.m. Guest this week is part three of three with the frontman slash singer-songwriter of the popular Minnesota rock band The Honey Dogs, Adam Levy. We discuss the Honey Dogs hit song, I Miss You, The Police, the album 10,000 Years, etc. Enjoy the conversation. Mr. Adam Levy, welcome back to the Mark Steri Music Podcast, part three. We're still here at Karma Coffee here in Northeast Minneapolis, and... Uh, Thanks, Adam, for being on. Appreciate it. Thanks for that. having me. It's been fun. Um, so last episode, we were kind of talking about your original stuff <laughs> and songwriting stuff. Anyway, so let's say my grandmother is listening to this podcast, uh-huh. and what she might, you never know, uh, and doesn't know who the Honey Dogs is or Adam Levy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Out of all your albums, what do you think is the quintessential Honey Dogs record? Oh, man, that's like saying, of your three children, who is the... <laughs> Who is the the for a person that didn't know kid. anything about your music? What would you what, what what CD would you hand them? You know, I'm one of these people who always believes like the newest stuff is the is the uh, the essence and core of who you are. Um, so when people ask me that, well, I don't know what to, what you know if I'm if I'm standing at the merch table and somebody's like, where do I start? I always say start with the new stuff, my solo record, Knob and Way, and. Uh, love and cannibalism they seem to be two sides of a of the coin uh, the Nobin way is a really reflective sort of uh, deep and melancholy record and set the glacier to the sea I'll be your martyr Set the bullseye to the rifle. Love and cannibalism is more energy, energy kind of rock, stripped down stuff. But I think for a lot of people, 10,000 Years is the record that they point to that's the watershed record that got them into the band. If they weren't fans really early on, that was the record that they that, that sort of pricked their ears up, like, wow, these guys are doing something kind of interesting, and it's a concept record, it's a story album, it covers a lot of musical landscape, it is, to a lot of people, it's a lot of, it's very catchy, and yet the, the subject matter is very heavy and, and dark. Okay, where did you record that at? That was recorded... Primarily at John Field's studio when he was in Minneapolis, but we did a lot of work in Los Angeles when he moved out there. Okay. I don't want to bring up a sore subject. We could edit this all out anyway, but uh, for, as when you brought up Nobbin Way, yeah. 
Um, your son's art is amazing. Thank and I you. do artists as a, I'm an artist. I do the part-time portrait stuff. But that stuff is amazing. I've Thank been you. following your posts on his artwork stuff for, well, years. And it reminds me, when I was a kid, there was that book called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. And it had that cool imagery like that. Yeah. So who is his influence as far as his artwork goes? It's amazing. Yeah. You know... We it's like kind of a Goya-ish kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's a good call. There's definitely Goya and Ralph Stedman and Salvador Dali and this dude named um, Giorgio de Chirico, the Surrealists. Um, he was also really big into graphic novels. So Okay, there you go. Uh, what's his name? Pet, not pet, is it Pettibone or Pet, Pettibone? Whatever the dude's name is. Um comic books you know he was all over the place and he was a big reader um you know i think his his mental illness was his biggest influence for sure okay kind of this the struggle that he went through and the things that he saw um and those were very real to him okay and they made their way into the art the art was like a art was a conversation that he he was having with himself about the nature of human suffering and evil and the thoughts that he had, thoughts he couldn't control, thoughts that kind of dominated his, his le- you know, every waking moment. Oof. But uh, uh, technically, that was some of the artists he was looking up to is, is uh, the ones you mentioned before? Yeah. He was, a, he was an art student. He was, he was one of these kids who was drawing... At two. I mean, he was yeah. doing pretty exquisite stuff, you know, his, the point of view and movement of characters and developing kind of a fantasy world really early on. He was a smart little kid. Yeah. And um, I was, a, you know, both his mom and I are, were visual artists as little kids, too. I kind of lo- lost it, I'd say, around college. I stopped doing visual art stuff, but... I was a big drawer as a kid. That was like the fantasy world that I created was through drawing, and we'd get lost in that. And Daniel, Daniel had that gene, and so art was was his way of kind of interpreting the world that he lived in and making sense of all of the unpleasantness that he had to had to deal with. Okay, yeah. I mean, being on Facebook and stuff, being friends with the multiple artists and stuff, visual artists. It's not every day where it jumps out. It's like, man, I'm a fan of this guy's artwork. There's a few in the Twin Cities go by, but since you started posting drawings that your that your yeah. son did, that's excellent art. That's one of my yeah. favorite artists, yeah. like visual artists. Besides anything else, just in general, seeing it on the screen, it's absolutely beautiful. So I just wanted to ask you his influences yeah. or whatever. I think it's just it's very his work comes off very. It's very honest. It's very empathetic. It's it's brutal and painful sometimes, but there's always. You know, when I look at all of this work of his and I spend a lot of time with it, uh, there is this sense of empathy with all of the characters that are undergoing some sort of pain, like you really identify with them in these in these drawings. Mostly pen and ink yeah. work that he did. Okay, on a, on a little lighter subject, I used to, uh, <laughs> when I was in uh, high school, right out of high school, I was... Uh, I used to work construction during the summer times in college. And uh, we'd crank KQRS every day at the job site. 
And I remember the foreman guy I worked for is a place called Beaverbrook Builders in Turtle Lake, Wisconsin. They were biggies, big Dylan fan, guitar guy, whatever. And his son is one of my best friends. And I, met, I remember working on some house in White Ash Lake or something. And, uh, and uh, I Miss You came on KQ. And he goes to me and he goes, now, Mark, he goes, this is the best song that's ever been written. It's my favorite <laughs> song of all time. And uh, I think it's still one of my favorite songs. So can we talk about kind of the history of that yeah, song? And, and, absolutely. Uh, and I know you recorded a couple different versions of that. Yep. One for the Honey Dogs record and one for, uh, I think, Saw Ghost record. Yes. Yeah, like when we got signed to our major label deal, that was the song that they kind of pointed to. Like, dude, you got to re-record that. That's the, that's the hit. That's the one that er- that's going to move everybody. And they kind of based that on their experience watching live shows and you know, we still play the song, and uh, people who aren't fans of the band recognize it instantly, even in different parts of the country. You know, like it was, it was the song was bigger than the band in a lot of ways, and I guess that was I guess that's my only taste of sort of uh, like a hit. Uh, you know, the song was written in 1992, and my then wife and son went out east she got a a scholarship to go to school out east and left me behind and so we were doing a long distance relationship and it was really hard that first year so that song is basically just a song about yearning and missing somebody and I think that's why it has the impact that it does it's such a basic human experience uh, that it just it's one of those songs that people heard and instantly they they, they were moved by it. Musically, to me, it was... I was listening to a lot of Steve Earle and Dylan at the time. So when I listen to that song now, it's that. Okay. You know, it's it might not be as uh, obtuse or, or puzzle-like of a lyric of, of Dylan. I wasn't able to write songs in that way then. I've kind of become more sophisticated, I guess, as time has gone on with lyrics. But I was able to write songs that were very much like a heart heard on my sleeve in a way that connected with people really instantly but musically it was Dylan and and Steve Earle which no not many people have ever really picked up on uh, what's that what kind of era of Steve Earle I you know at that time he was uh he was on to his fourth record I think I mean I loved I loved the Guitar Town record Exito I loved was it El Corazon era earlier 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 yeah um, Copperhead Road. 
same as my daddy and his daddy before. You hardly ever saw granddaddy down here. They only come a town about twice a year. You buy a hundred pounds of yeast and a copper line. So when Bob Seeger wrote Night Moves, yes, and he recorded it. He said he knew the second he wrote that song that it would connect with people and to be a hit. So when you wrote that song, did you have that inner feeling like this is it? I think sometimes when I spend energy, and this has kind of always been the, the case, I haven't wasted a lot of time on songs that I didn't feel had some potential to connect with people. You never know like how far a song is going to go. Sometimes there's things that I've created that I thought, like, wow, this is, like, really great. And then it doesn't get much of an audience. Um, but I guess that was a song when I was writing it. It felt really, there was an urgency as I was singing it. And part of it is that, um, you know, when you, when you create a song that has that sense of yearning or regret that's, that's real... And, it, and you pair that sentiment with kind of a catchy melody or something, it has that potential for sure. Okay. So who, whose idea was it to... So you got picked up by a major label for the, the main version or the, yeah. the popular version of yeah. it or whatever. Um, so did they just... Like, what, did you meet with a producer? Like, whose idea was it to, like... I think, like, in the original one, you don't go right to the chorus, the I miss you, it kind of goes to the, the middle part of the chorus, uh-huh. the other one. Yeah. So whose idea was that? And were you upset about that? Or as the artist, what did you think about all that? I kind of... Sus- sped it up, I think, a little bit. You had a girl singing the backups in the first one, I think. Yeah, Martin Zeller, actually. Yeah, I mean, that, that early, without going into a lot of detail, you know, uh, when the Picadors broke up, my brother and I started playing with Martin Zeller as we were kind of getting our solo thing going, or my Adam Levy turned into the Honey Dogs. And so there was some par- personnel overlap with Martin's band, Mar- Martin, Luth- uh, Martin Luther. <laughs> Martin Zeller's uh, first solo record was done as I was writing my own solo stuff so there was a, there were a lot of parallels and the way I was playing the way Noah was playing and that merging of kind of rock and roll and country that Martin had done that's another band I think that was uh, you know kind of in that period that was that was walking that walk of Americana and really honest simple lyrics that 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 reached a lot of people um, but when we when we got signed by the label there was a lot of there was a lot of things they wanted us to do. Some things we didn't want to do and some things we just kind of just put our feet down and said, no, we're not gonna. But some things that they suggested where, you know, you've, you've written some of these songs on your earlier records and they just never got the audience they deserve. If you re-release these songs, you're going to get radio airplay. Um, it's just a really good career move. And at that time, a lot of bands did that. Okay. A lot of bands that we could point to, they re-recorded songs when they got major label deals. So it wasn't that far afield of, of um, you know, what was kind of normal. 
in the in the process of getting signed to a major label deal and at that time that was the gold standard you know you you do a few indie records you tour a shitload and then you you get signed by a major label and you get a publishing deal and then boom like you sort of can coast that's kind of what we thought was going to happen yeah and so when people said to us you know why don't you re-record these songs why don't you uh Sequence the songs this way. Why don't you? Yeah. Why don't you cut? I miss you. Like those bars out there. Get right to the chorus. You gotta. Yeah. You, you wait too long to get to the chorus. I'm listening to people who are working with John Cougar Mellencamp, and I'm listening to people who worked with uh, Al Green and worked with the Brothers Johnson or worked with uh, uh, Vanessa Williams. You know, like hit 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 makers. Yeah. And they kind of knew what they were doing, so. I just sort of suspended my own judgment and and thought, we'll do it the way they want it, and then you do what you want to, you know. I knew all my favorite bands, you know, they, they, they kind of had a hit record, and then they could kind of experiment and do whatever the hell they wanted to. And at that time, my songwriting was getting more experimental. And so if you listen to Scene of Ghost, it's a real uneven record, in my opinion, because there are a few of those moments of kind of experimental things kind of poking out, and then there are the tried and true, more popular things we were doing. And, and I think that was the compromise that the label made. Like, if you put this stuff on there, if you, if you put these hits, then you guys can do this other stuff. So it's not like, to me, and not a great listening experience. But there's songs like Sweet Pea, which is the one that ends the record. That's me singing with a guitar and a string quartet. And there's a song called Into Thin Air that's really experimental kind of arty lyrics and sonically it's just uh it was uh, you know it was uh, fun to do it was just something we'd never done before and then after seeing a ghost it was like we were off to the races i didn't want to talk to anyone anybody telling me how to do what i do <laughs> and they basically gave us a budget to go in the studio for uh, for here's luck and weren't listening to anything we were doing. The downside was they weren't paying attention, so they didn't give a shit. So we got dropped after about a year of them sitting on the record, but we got to make the record we wanted to make without anybody telling us what to do. And to me, Here's Luck is a much better record than Seen a Ghost. I love Here's Luck. And uh, my favorite one on there, I wrote this, I, maybe I saved the picture on my yeah. phone, was Red... Red Dot number 40 oh, yeah, or something yeah. like that. I mm -hmm. love that song. That's off that became kind of a standard live song for us too. What was it? Until is there, recently, I downloaded a version of Red Dot Forty One. What's that? Red Dye Number. Well, Red Dye Number Forty. So we did two versions of the song when we recorded the record. We did one that's th that ended up on Island of Misfits. That's more kind of straight ahead rocking, and then this more odd, sampled, uh, grungy, swampy I one that it. ended up on the album. And uh, we did that with a couple songs. There's Hearts and Heads ended up with two versions of that. That's one of my favorite ones that on there, too. And on Island of Misfits, it's uh, Corazon. I, I kind of wish we would have put that one on Here's Luck. It's a more... Uh, I was really into this band, this Brazilian band called Os Mutanches, and that, that version that ended up on Island of Misfits was kind of a nod to that. 
So here's luck to me. It was this record where I was, you know, there's a couple of kind of Americana moments on that album, Freak Show and uh, Houses Next Door. And we sort of decided, let's get rid of that stuff, most of that country stuff. Rosie Flores came to town. We'll set it aside. And then after Here's Luck came out, we released Island of Misfits, which is a bunch of okay. kind of outtake stuff and different versions that weren't on Here's Luck. Does Here's Luck have two album covers? Because on the, on the, on the iTunes, it's like feet and stuff. And yep. then on the YouTube, it's you guys stand in front of the Como Conservatory. Yeah, I mean, those, that, was the, that was the promo photo shot the was promo, at, the, okay. at the conservatory, but the, the picture of the, the kind of freak show person standing on top of a woman on a bed of nails, that was the cover okay. of Here's Luck. Uh, that was funny because I was walking around Como as I was discovering that song. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and look at the picture. Oh, they're, uh-huh, they're here. That's funny. <laughs> I wonder if he tracked it in there. Yeah. Um, uh, a couple more questions. Yeah. I, I uh, recently downloaded and rediscovered while I was teaching this summer one of my favorite bands when I was a kid, uh, NXS Kick. I had to download that. I love every song on yeah. that record. I know you guys worked with them or toured with them. Yeah. Do you have any cool NXS experiences you could share with us? Did you meet, meet Hutchins? And oh, yeah. What's the, bo- what's the brothers, out. boys? Uh, the, is it the Bass Brothers or uh, uh, the Beer Brothers? They were all super nice dudes. Um, and it was a learning experience for us. You know, it was the major label record came out and part of the setup of the release of the record was we're going to put you on the road for six weeks with NXS and then you're going to do a couple dates with John Bon Jovi and so there was this the sense that this tour with a you know legacy band they were they were kind of having a little bit of a comeback there was a movie that came out and they had this record on Mercury so they were label mates and our guy that was the president of our label had been with Mercury and got this tour set up and so we ended up doing six weeks chasing a se- semi trucks and and tour van or tour buses in our little van or two vans. It was a learning experience, you know. They were Michael Hutchins was kind of a rock god, you know. Yeah. New women in every town, and um, <laughs> but he he was kind of spiraling at that time. I think he was struggling with with trying to kind of keep his career on track it was a big tour for them in some ways because they hadn't done a lot of touring before that recently um so we were watching you know we were watching everything that was happening we were watching the good and the bad things you know he was he was an amazing performer and you know as we're kind of thinking how are we going to present ourselves and what are we going to do i mean musically it was not the best fit you know i don't think a lot of people understood what we were doing or didn't fit in with who NXS was. But there were a lot of people who dug our music on that tour. We made a lot of fans playing to these big theater shows and outdoor festival shows. Um, And I think we kind of, you know, the rock, Las Vegas Rock and Roll 101, you know, we were kind of watching how do you keep a crowd engaged and how uh, how do you make a set list that keeps people rocking and all of that. 
But Michael Hutchins was, you know, every night got more and more drunk and oh, messed really? up. And um, it just seemed to sort of unravel. It was like we were watching this. You know, it was like, what's going to happen next? Is something bad going to happen? And yes. when that tour was finished, um, he died. So that was like the last tour that he was on. Really? And and there was the kind of a bit of a cautionary tale watching things happen. Like, oh, man, I don't want to let myself go that much. I don't want to be out of control. I want to do this in a way where I'm sane and I'm not so drunk. And uh, I was drinking a lot at that point. You know, we were partying a lot on the road. And that was kind of the way it was. Like, you know, have fun and celebrate being rock, you know, rock musicians. Yeah. But I was always thinking, like, what am I going to do next musically? This isn't really where I want to be right now. Yeah. Man, interesting. Love in Excess. I had to ask you about that. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more here. So I had Scott Winham on here uh, a while back, and he was talking about you guys that attended the same police concert, and it was like this quintessential moment. Is yeah. that the one you were just talking about, yeah. the Ecstasy Open Forum? Yep. Yeah, that would have been, as I said, I think like winter of 1980 or 1981. Damn, I can't remember. But police had just released a Zenyatta Mandata, so that was their... I guess that was kind of a big breakthrough record for them, Don't Stand So Close To Me and um, Do 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 Da Da Da, whatever the hell the name of that song was. But there was, like, not a huge number of people there, which was kind of shocking to me. So there was this sense of intimacy of watching this band do their thing. Um, but, you know, I knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do when I was at that show. I want to be up there. I want to be doing this. I want to tour. I want to travel. I want to play to big audiences. And I don't care how many people I'm playing to. That was the other revelation was, like, man, I listen to these guys on the radio, and I sort of imagine there'd be these screaming fans everywhere, and there's not. And... Maybe that's what it's kind of all about, just making music. And it doesn't matter if people, you know, are screaming for you or not. This is what it's, this is why you do it. Super cool. All right, maybe we talked about uh, I Miss You is, a, you know, the story on the song segment. There's one I got to ask. So my yeah. favorite ones is you're off your 2003 release, 10,000 Years. Yeah. Can you tell me the story behind that song? The song 10,000 Years? Yeah, I love that song. Well, it's a, you know, it's a story record. Super catchy, man. Yeah, that's the, the, the sort of title track of the record it is about the, the lead character in the story it's kind of a science fiction story where this kid is a test tube kid somewhere in the you know near future this woman smuggles him out of the you know laboratory and raises him and he ends up kind of getting influenced by the world around him and becomes a small time criminal goes to jail and then it has like a near-death experience where he gets stabbed. A lot of it was based on work I was doing with, with, with at-risk kids, with uh, youth offenders. Spent about 10 years helping kids get jobs and working with them. And so I just was amazed at all of the resilience and stories I was hearing and thought it might be kind of cool to do a record about some of these kids and refugees that I was working with. And I was also like a big history, history fan and paying attention to what was going on in the world and the rise of Islam, you know, like it was, it was really clear, like there was this, this force that was gaining momentum and power. 
And uh, I didn't know how it was going to end and wrote this story, weaving these things together. This kid watches this war unfold on television, which is the theme song, 10,000 years of him going, oh my gosh, like all of this horrible violence and what's going to happen and can't we just move beyond this horrible history of violence our, our planet's been consumed in. And at the end of the song, he sort of goes off to fight this war. So that's basically what that song is about. How about the cool chord changes? Ah. How does that go? I mean, that is just super catchy and cool. Thanks, man. The changes are just neat. Like, even lyric, besides lyrically, just a catchy, neat song. Yeah, it's um, it has key changes in it, which is probably a first in a, in a Honey Dog song, I think, in that one. I can't remember before that doing that, moving from one key to another. So you go like... The first part of the song moves into a B part, which is a key change, and then it changes keys again, um, and it creates kind of this propelling urgency, which is yeah. that idea of watching this world kind of moving into uh, a whole new violent order of things. And it was before 9-11, the song was written. So when 9-11 happened, we were about to make that record, Yeah, and we were playing these songs live on the road, and... And all of a sudden, like, there was this sense of this music being of the time, like maybe too much of the time. So, the, there's songs about the, you know, airplanes crashing and spreading disease and things like that. And um, it was, it just felt weird. It felt It felt like maybe that was the wrong thing to be singing about. So some guys in the band were like, can't we just, like, make a, pop record and something really happy and I just plowed ahead and just said no we're going to do this we need to make this record it's a really important record right now it took a few years for it to come out but it got an audience people saw it as as very timely and interestingly enough like when I play the songs now it's still they have a resonance you know we've been living in this this era of international violence and uh, you know our country is in a weird flux as far as our role of who we are in internationally wow uh, that's a great song thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing the story with that thank you Adam Levy for thank being you. on the Mark Stereo Music Podcast I really really appreciate it uh, I've looked up to you for a long time loved your music thank, thank you so much for being on there um, check out the Honey Dog. Check you out on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Go to shows. Pick up some of the CDs. Download some of the music. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Mark. Good questions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of the Mark Starry Music Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the program. We'll see you back here for new podcasts about life and times and live and local music scene each and every Tuesday, if not before, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and most other places podcasts are available. This is a listener-supported podcast, so if you'd like to get on board, please visit patreon.com forward slash Mark Starry Music Podcast. If you enjoyed some of the musical edits on the show, please head on over to your local record store or do some digging on iTunes and load up on some new songs. Also, if you get a chance, please go check out some live music somewhere. It could be a great and worthwhile experience. Life is short. Go have some fun. Till next time.
Doesn't look like one of our planes, boys Got past all our detection Left us with a small infection Brother 33, not Tel Aviv, D.C. Back to the Stone Age Where to use the plane Another 